Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Well, I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live after all. Working at Lincoln Center, it sounds very huge and elevated. And that's what it feels like, like once you're working there. Because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. People are becoming more and more comfortable I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't we don't back away from anything. Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 409 for May 27, 2010. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we've got a lot of stuff for you in this episode. Uh, Taryn Sterry is here to talk about her show, 180 Days, which is to raise awareness for the Visiting Nurse Service of New York. Uh, we'll talk about that. Then we have also got the Common Air uh, Kind of hits a timely chord with all the problems in air travel. We have got Medoti. Uh, we have got Clubbed Thumb launching its three-show summer season with Dot. And we have got two more shows from the Planet Connections festivity, of which don't miss the full dedicated episode, last, uh, last episode that we did. Uh, we have got... Two shows from that, The Time of the Season, which is a quote-unquote sequel to Midsummer Night's Dream, as well as Uncle Shelby's Wonder Panty of Possibilities, which is designed to strain marquees. All right, well, with all that said, uh, we got a big show, so let's get started. Sweet Charity. Taryn Sterry is an actress, comedian, monologuist, and more, and she's been running a show since September called 180 Days, which she uses as a unique way of rounding up volunteers for the Visiting Nurse Service of New York. And uh, so some people say they want to change the world with theater. Well, she's actually trying to do something about that. So let's find out how she does that. We got Taryn here. How are you doing? Hello. Thank you for having me. All right. So I guess uh, there's a lot to talk about here with... uh, I guess first off, obviously the most interesting, what's going to bring people in, what is 180 Days as a show? 180 Days is the story of my first six months working in hospice. Uh, About 10 years ago, I uh, was attending the University of California at Santa Cruz, and uh, uh, I took a six-month ethnographic field study. Healthcare was my uh, choice for what I would do, and it ended up being in hospice. I was effectively a volunteer with a hospice program, and it was the hospice most... is like one of the hardest places to be. It's it's got to be. Well, <laughs> I would think. Well, and most people do think that. And while it has its definite challenges, I think the 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 dirty little secret of hospice is that you always get more than you give. It's the old adage of receiving through giving. And that's what it's about. It's it's about service. It's about uh, dedicating yourselves to helping people and in turn getting the rewards that come through being of service to other people. So now this show has been running off and on since September. Yes. Right? So, so how do you work the run? How do you get the word out each time when you're when you're doing the show? Oh, all the great <laughs> social media outlets that we have these days, Facebook, Twitter, all of uh, my hospice volunteers. We have about 240 hospice volunteers at the Visiting Nurse Service of New York. 
we also have about 14,000 staff members. So uh, I, I talk about my show with all of my colleagues in the elevator to the volunteers. We talk about it at trainings. And 90% of my audience has been hospice staff and volunteers. However, it also speaks to a wider audience for people who don't know about hospice, who don't know about the Visiting Nurse Service of New York, and who are curious about the subject and who may want to volunteer, who may want to be of service but don't know how yet. And hopefully the show is one vehicle for inspiring them to do service. So how much is this, and, and forgive me, I don't mean this to sound negative because I don't, uh, but so how would you define the show's separation between is it an infomercial or is it a, an entertainment piece? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm certainly not selling anything, so it's not an info. There are no blenders to be uh, bought uh, at the show. Um, the show is both uh, dramatic and comedic. I don't think any show that is primarily about hospice care can ever be a, a, a straight comedy because there is inherent poignancy and and depth and drama to to dying so but I also find that in my own story and in many of the stories from the staff that I work with every single day that there is also some sublime comedy involved in our patients stories and their lives and humor is also a very uh, popular coping mechanism for many, many people. This may be unnecessary, and I maybe I'm the only one this stupid, but we do have a lot of young listeners in uh, high school and college, and I know I actually didn't really know what hospice was myself until relatively recently when my grandmother herself you know, went into one. The name's kind of misleading. So do you want to maybe, even for those people who don't get what the difference is between hospice and hospital to explain what yes. hospice is? Well, a lot of people think of hospice as a place. Hospice is actually a philosophy of care. Uh, it comes from the, the Latin root is, is uh, respite. So what hospice is, hospice is a philosophy of service for people who have a diagnosis of six months or less to live. Uh, we provide comfort care to people who want to die at home or in a nursing home, or in our uh, residence that we have on the Upper East Side. Our main goal is to help people die with dignity and in comfort and surrounded uh, by their families, surrounded by people who love them, help them accomplish any goals that they may have before they die, and to be with people and witness their, their process and to make sure that they have what we at hospice call a good death, which means that they are in the driver's seat, they make the choices, and it is you know, one of the most important time in a person's life, in a family's life, is when a family member dies. And how can we meet them where they are, be of service, do those little things that neighbors used to do for each other for free, bring a casserole, run an errand, sit and listen, uh, be there when a family member needs to get out of the house for an hour. These are all the things that volunteers can do for patients and families to to help them during oftentimes one of the most very most difficult times in that family's life. So it definitely sounds like rich, you know, fodder for you to develop a show out of. Is there maybe one uh, slight story that you want to relate that kind of hit you while you were, you know, working hospice that maybe made its way into 180 days? Well, you know, I was very young when I got into the field. I was 23 when I did this field study, and I, I had very 
um, very clear ideas on how I wanted to help people. And I thought that patients would want to uh, tell me about the meaning of life. And that was my goal, was to figure out the meaning of life and, and learning it from people who were dying. And, and what happened was a very different different thing. And that's really what 180 Days is about. 180 Days is about me showing up and them teaching me things about life that I would never have been able to learn had I not showed up and and been with them and witnessed them. One patient in particular who I, I, I talk about in the show is um, Jenny. And it she their family had a, a very different way of dealing with with her dying process. I had my own ideas on how I thought uh, they should they should be dealing with it and, and how the children should be talking about it. And what I learned while being there and, and the years after and, and my own work in hospice today is that I had my own needs to help and to serve. And I had my own things about myself that I wanted to, uh, to clear up about my own past and how, how my own family deals with, uh, with death and loss and grief. And so the story is really about uh, my, my story of going into the hospice and, and my reasons for doing it. It's centered around five different patients uh, throughout, the, throughout the, the six months that I was there. And then it also tells the story of not only the people who were dying and the families, but also about the caregivers, the people who serve them, and it tells their stories because hospice patients are our teachers. They teach us about life, but not in the ways that we might expect them to. And that's why people should volunteer. That is why they should do this, because it, it will teach them things about their own lives and about themselves that, that they really wouldn't have the opportunity to do uh, in other volunteer uh, dimensions. So, yeah, now that we're talking about the volunteerism. So now you use this show as a way to bring in more volunteers. So how, how does that work? Do you, like, after the show curtain closes, do you, like, all of a sudden do, like, the Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS and bar all the doorways? And <laughs> <laughs> we, we force them to fill out applications before they get out of their seats, actually. Um, <laughs> we, we, I have recruitment materials at every show. I talk about the show, or I talk about the visiting nurse service in the show. I mentioned that this is where I work today. Um, and, and through the show, it, it, it is made very clear how important volunteering is. Um, everyone who comes to the show uh, is associated uh, with VNSNY or uh, hospice care in some way after the show. I get them to follow me on Twitter and, and Facebook so they know what's going on. They know about volunteer events. They know that we are there when they are ready to volunteer. We have um, trainings that go on six times a year. We're always onboarding. They're short-term projects, long-term projects. How much time do you need to commit to volunteer for the? Well, it depends on what on how people want to give. Uh, we ask for at least one year of service for anybody who wants to volunteer with patients doing direct care. Um, and that's because once they come in and they start serving patients, we want them to stick around uh, for as long as those patients and families are on our program. Again, hospice is for people who are, are uh, have six months or less to live. So um, for that, we ask a, at least one year of service. However, we have uh, monthly projects. People can just show up, stuff 
packets, uh, send out mailings, help with fundraising. Uh, and then we have dozens of educational events, uh, office projects, and things like that going on all the time. Let's say they do want to commit for the full year. How many hours a week do they need to... Is this, like, basically a part-time mm-hmm. job, or is No, it... no. Most of our volunteers, like... <laughs> what hours do they get? Do they, you know, can they pick flexible hours? How does... It's very flexible. It's very flexible. Uh, most volunteers visit one patient uh, one hour uh, once a week. Uh, that is what we ask for full-time volunteers, volunteers who work full-time at full-time jobs. Um, and that's generally what patients need and what volunteers can give. We try to set them up with patients who are in their neighborhoods and also with patients whose need matches the skills and contributions that the volunteers have to give. Uh, I've had many amazing matches with uh, volunteers and patients where uh, one patient was had an identical twin sister and the volunteer had an identical twin sister. So they had that in common. And just by talking about that, having that in, that thing in common, it allowed for them to have even deeper conversations about what the patient was going through. Um, we have patients who are artists and obviously volunteers who are artists mm-hmm. in New York City. So, so when, when we can bring those things together, uh, those provide those sacred spaces for patients to open up and talk about the, the deeper stuff that's going on. Just like um, anybody that you meet, there's there's always you know an ice breaking period, and and you have to get to know someone before you you know you get real personal. It's the same thing with with uh, hospice patients and volunteers, and that's why we really want people to stick with it because man, when that happens, amazing things happen. And and hospice, I have found, is a life changing opportunity for volunteers. Now, is it just hospice that is the volunteers are for? It, with the visiting nurse services of New York, and right, make sure I get that <laughs> all, all right. Is it just hospice that visiting nurse service of New York does, or is it there are also other? The visiting nurse service of New York is a, a, has many many programs. Uh, we serve patients when they get out of the hospital. We serve um, elderly in their homes who are not on hospice, um, and there are volunteer programs. Uh, outside of hospice that are also very active and alive within uh, VNSNY. Um, Hospice is one part of VNSNY. Uh, It has the most active volunteer uh, program because uh, Medicare uh, requires that all hospices have a volunteer program and that those hospices provide 5% of their direct patient care through volunteers. So really, we we have to have a volunteer program, and which is a very good thing because hospice was founded by volunteers. So another thing that it does is that hospice volunteers remind us of our roots. That hospice came about because doc, uh, doctors and nurses started volunteering their time to go and visit patients who were sick and dying in their homes and who couldn't make it into the hospital. So our volunteers today remind us of our roots and where we came from. Well, it's definitely an interesting idea. So how do you actually keep this running uh, commercially as a show? Where do you? How do you get the show up? Where did you get the idea? Who's behind you to help mount this? Mm. Well, VNSNY <laughs> is definitely behind this show, and um, our vice president of hospice, Jean Dennis, has been one of my uh, one of my biggest fans, and she actually helped me 
take the show up to Albany, New York, a couple of weeks ago for the Hospice and Palliative Care Association of New York State's 30th annual conference. And so uh, many of the the uh, leaders of hospice throughout the entire state saw it a couple of weeks ago. Um, and then we, we do uh, just like every other off-off Broadway show in New York. You get your mm-hmm. friends and you have your friends tell your friends and mm-hmm. you get you offer incentives for people to come and you give discounts and mm-hmm. and uh, it's really the most important one though is word of mouth I don't think anything sells somebody on anything else than better than uh, you know I saw this show and it's great and you got to go see it and uh, hopefully that's what uh, the people who are coming and seeing my show are uh, telling their friends well, one thing I wonder if you've thought about already, but we have listeners, you know, all over the country, all over the world. Um, is this show by in any means available for somebody else to do? If, if somebody else in Topeka likes the idea of what you're doing but doesn't maybe have the means or the talent or sit down and write their own show, mm-hmm. are, are you allowing this show to be performed for other services? Well, it's not, uh, uh, it's not available uh, for, for, uh, mm-hmm. for other people to perform it yet. Um, that's a possibility in the future. It is available for tour right now. Um, hospices, theaters, universities, if they want the show brought to them, um, I will bring the show to mm-hmm. them, uh, especially hospices, because it can be used as volunteer uh, recognition events, fundraisers, um, and it's it can also be um, at universities. They have a built-in audience with home care and hospice uh, people in that community. Um, that's those are other ways that it can be seen. All right. Well, this is fascinating. I'm, I'm sure we could probably talk for a lot longer. <laughs> we got a pretty full show this week. But all this information, I'm assuming, can be found at your website? Yes. And what is that? Yes. www.terrensterry.com. T-A-R-E-N-S-T-E-R-R-Y.com. We'll have a link to that on our website as well. And on that, on your website, I'm assuming, do you have links for signing up for volunteerism? Yes, there's links for signing up for volunteerism. <laughs> uh, there are uh, links to the theater where the show is at. There are links to uh, buy tickets on um, for the show. Uh, everything is on the website. That is the best place to go for the information. Okay. I also just did just see here at the bottom of the press release, we do have an official website, which is www.vnsny.org and an 800 number of 1-800-675-0931. Yes, and if you go to vnsny.org and you search for hospice volunteers in the upper right corner, that gives all the information on our next training, which is happening in August, and that has an open enrollment, and all people have to do is uh, call and sign up for that. All right, well, this has been fascinating, and thank you so much, Taryn Sterry, for stopping by, and best of luck as you continue with helping with the hospice and using the show to get the word out. Thank you so much for having me. On the boards. With all the problems in air control recently, maybe if you fly a lot during all the delays, you could have written a play. And maybe you could have written a play about airport delays. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the Common Air is playing through June 27th at 45 West Bleecker. And uh, it is a play that is tied together thematically with uh, air delays. And we've got actor-writer Alex Lyris, as well as director-writer Robert McCaskill, here with us to discuss the show. How are you guys doing today? Good. How are you, Michael? All right. You guys want to introduce yourselves so people can connect the voice with your name? I'm Robert McCaskill. Yes, you are, and I'm Alex Lyris. <laughs> All right. So first things first, what is the common air? 
Take it, Robert. Well, The Common Air <laughs> is a, a 90-minute piece of theater, and um, Alex plays all six characters. We wrote the play together, and I directed it. And uh, each character talks to the next character. So character number one talks to character number two, who then talks to character number three. And it happens during an airport delay at JFK. And each one of these men reveals not only their thoughts about the delay, but they end up revealing their characters. All right. So what was the inspiration behind, uh, behind this? I mean, was it indeed all the, the current timeliness of, like, the freaking... The, the the well, why am I lost for words the the dust cloud over all of Europe. <laughs> what's in that? What's in that water bottle? <laughs> um, Volcano. Was, yes, that's yes. the word. <laughs> yes, we, it's funny because we we um, those the what's been happening in airports has been helping the show. I mean, it's it's so in the zeitgeist right now, and. Um, the inspiration for the play came from really us having a lot to say as writers and pe- things that we're, we were inspired by. And also the context is always very important. Where do people monologue in real life? Um, I was a bartender for many years, and you get your regulars. They come in. They say hi. They have two drinks. They talk for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. So when when do people talk for 10 or 15 minutes? I've had the experience that during airport delays when you chit-chat with someone and then you realize you're there for another two hours. Suddenly the stories get longer. So realism is an important part of it, and airport delays are where people feel like it's okay to reveal themselves. They're never going to see you again, and they're going to talk about what they want to talk about and leave it there. Did you think about, rather than a commercial run, doing the show at uh, terminals where there were airport delays? <laughs> Recently, I got a WordPress blog. Um, I got a WordPress blog that I've been having theatrical musings on, and pretty much bad news in airports is great news for the show. So Rob and I want to maybe like get a truck and just basic lights, and, and f- you know, with a snowstorm, everyone's fleeing, we're going right there. I think you could probably get a lot of press if you did something like that when there was a, a big delay, go mount your show there. Yeah. <laughs> we wrote this show three years ago, or started writing it three years ago, so the current problems are not the inspiration for the show, but they do seem to follow different uh, incidents that happen in the show. There, one character is an American of Iraqi um, descent, and he goes back to Iraq ostensibly to be a, um, a food uh, processor, but then um, he goes to look for his mother, who did not come to America, and he ends up being uh, captured by insurgents and uh, radicalized. So we really look at the radicalization process. It's the longest piece in the show, and we go step by step. He tells his story of radicalization. And um, the, the recent guy who left this car bomb in Times Square has a similar story, a frighteningly similar story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Alex, yourself as a, as a nationality, I'm looking at you and I'm guessing that you have this very, you definitely look like you're from foreign, but I can't peg. Foreign. I am foreign, yes. <laughs> I, I'm guessing you get, oh, are you from Iraq? Are you from Greece? Are you from... Uh, it depends who I'm meeting. It depends who I'm meeting. Um, you nailed it on your second one. I'm, I'm Greek. I'm 100% Greek. Okay, you actually... Uh, and uh, but I have lied to casting people my whole life and would con- continue to do so. You know, I can be um, Apache, <laughs> I can be Puerto Rican man. Do you know that's easy in New York? And I can be Iraq. Iraq was very easy. And um, learning the language, which we speak some Baghdad Iraqi in the show, uh, wasn't that far from Greek, just in terms of pronunciation. They do some very traditional things. They split all vowels. They say like Israel, and so there are certain things that you can hit that that make you uh, seem authentic, and people often wonder. 
<laughs> yeah, we get, um, you know, I sit in the show and I sit in the audience to watch the show. And afterwards, people will, I hear over people, overhear people saying, um, oh, I think he's really Iraqi. I think he really is telling the story. I think it's a biographical story. Couldn't be further from the truth. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of solo shows um, tread that dangerous ground. I mean, we, we have to constantly fight uh, people's preconceived notions that this is going to be some kind of biography and you're going to trot out your, your personal baggage on the stage. <laughs> um, this is not. It's fiction. Um, it's, it, it bends towards you know, high language and poetry and we, we're very aware of scansion and what words we use. And so it's not about my life. In, in a way, it's about our, our combined thoughts about – everything that's unfolding around us. Um, so I think that's something that's important to to get out there. This is a play. It's not a comedy act, and it's not um, my life to exercise that I was really raised a black lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, are there monologists, uh, you know, one person show people that you kind of admire personally, mm -hmm. that you have modeled yourself and your, your works after? Yeah. Well, a couple of them that, we've, that we both like a lot, Eric Bogosian yeah, and Danny Hawk. Um, Eric Bogosian I first saw maybe 20 years ago, and he's so inspiring, so um, charismatic, and had such a great take, and um, that was definitely an early inspiration. Also, you know, the comedians that were intelligent, Lenny Bruce and um, later Lily Tomlin, um, these are people who had social commentary. Um, so it was it was inspiring to realize that they could couch it in a character, in a drama, and also be making a point. The... Um, the true inspiration is a woman named Ruth Draper, who was uh, at the turn of the century, and she was doing monologues in, in salons in New York that were reflections of the people that she was meeting, and, and there, some of her recordings were saved, and it, that, that is the real kind of the source material for a lot of this. She's, she's just one of the, the early people that created this forum. So what was the development process for you putting this mm -hmm. together, actually, you know, deciding what to keep, throw out, structure? It's, um, <clears throat> it's, it's, the, it's the best part. It's, it's um, getting an inspiration from a real live character. So the opening of the show is a, an Iraqi cab driver. And I was going from 14th Street to Midtown, and I, we had a driver. We actually couldn't get a cab, so we just got a regular limo. It was four people. And we hit traffic around the limelight, 23rd Street, and we were stuck. And this guy was blasting music out of his car and dancing, and he kept telling us he's a professional dancer. So at the at the light, he would kind of step out of the car and, like, jiggle and dance <laughs> and celebrate the gridlock. And... Um, I I just knew that was it. He was uh, he was a character. I was I was looking back, and I think I, a friend of mine, an actress, was in the car at the time. She's she's like, this is going to be in your next show, and he was. <laughs> so something like that, I'll bring into Rob's class. Rob teaches acting um, Monday and Tuesday nights and Tuesday day, and he um, gets all kinds of students that bring in original material, and he's like, good character, but um, we got to flush this out. It's not just an act. It's not just bits. We need a story. You know, Alex is a transformational actor. He really um, is uh, has always been an actor that doesn't just play himself. He loves to really create a, a whole new human being. So um, he, he's he's very responsive to people he sees in life. He's always uh, imitating the guy who's behind us in line at the movie theater. Um, but then we, as writers, get in and say, "Well, what could this be about? And who is this person? And what are what are his issues?" 
so this this clowny guy went from you know someone who was joking about dancing and 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 how he loves you know American excess and waste into Rob would say you know what's his home life you know he left his father in Iraq let's pull that out a little bit and then it may not be complete in that monologue but then another theme later will be a father son theme and you start to link things and the best part of the process is after these characters are you figured out who they are and what story they're going to tell then you go and you pull back from the script and you look at all your various themes and you try to spiral them towards a center and that that is definitely the most fun and and it's just great to work with another writer and shoot it back and forth and say did you notice these words let's let's mirror them here or Images, you start to do image themes um, where some people will reference similar things and you start to build around that. So it, it becomes really – and we've, we, we worked on it yesterday. So the show has been – it had an L.A. production and then we took a year off and Rob directed his first feature film called Heterosexuals. And now we're back to working on the play and two days ago we did new behavioral rehearsals for one of the characters. That just keeps it fresh. Uh, sidetracking for just a second. Your show's called Heterosexuals. Following the recent debate, did any gay guys play successfully heterosexuals? Uh, <laughs> Since Newsweek has told us that they can't. Uh, I did not cast any gay men as heterosexuals, no. Not in that film. <laughs> so, you're it's, to blame. I'm the guy. No. I'm the guy. <laughs> no. Now, um, but speaking of that, like kind of day jobs, teaching, acting, mm -hmm. and stuff, um, how does teaching acting as a as a director help you with your directing into your career? Well, you learn how to talk to actors. You learn the actor's process. You learn what's probably going to push the actor's buttons in a bad way, so you avoid that. And you learn what's probably going to, you know, push his buttons in a good way. Alex and I have been working together for 16, 17 years, so we know each other pretty well. <laughs> I love it. Um, it's It's invaluable. And I meet directors who are not directors. When you get onto a television set, there's so many fastballs going at those guys. They will almost never say anything except a very basic thing like slower or more. <laughs> and then they go and, you know, it's it's crazy. It's it's not this type of acting. This is really nuanced um, internal stuff. So Rob has a new – so this is a new tool that he's been working on called imaging. And now I'm into the show. I know the character well. And I'll be performing it. And this is a drill where you – you create an image of the character you think you are, and you almost watch that character doing the monologue. Now, this is something in the early phases would throw me off, but I'm set now. I know the show, and it becomes a new kind of mental activity to do during the show. It takes you out of your head. It puts you further into this creation. Um, what else would you say about imaging? Well, you're just looking for very deep empathy with this imagined character to really believe that this person is a real person and open your heart to that person. And it, it creates subtle changes in behavior, and it creates a, uh, a heat, an emotional heat. So earlier on in your career, I always like to find interesting things here, though backing up, completely separate. What, as day jobs, was the <laughs> oddest day job that either of you had to do while pursuing your, yeah. your careers? I once worked as a mercury cleaner. Uh, mercury is used industrially, and it gets dirty, and it was brought to this plant. And I would have to put it through this cleaning process. Of course, it's highly toxic. So I had a gas mask and a full hazmat suit. And I would go into this room where there was a, a meter to uh, reveal how much mercury was in the air. And if it got above a certain point, I had to get out. <laughs> and it's heavy. It's metal. 
So the canisters would weigh 60, 70 pounds, and I was lugging those all day. That sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs> and Alex? I think um, it wasn't the weirdest, but it was definitely delivering flowers during um, the holiday season. Uh, there was a Greek guy at church who had a flower shop, and I had a van full of flowers, and I was driving all over Westchester County delivering flowers all, all, all day and all night. It was like a 12-hour shift. And that was the first time I realized at 16 and a half years old that the poor people are the ones who tip. So you open the door to this giant house in New Rochelle, and the woman's like, ah, I don't know where my wallet is. (laughs) Put it over here. Thank you. And then the guy, you know, in the track housing near the train station was like, wait there, wait, wait, and throwing me a five. And I also met a lot of characters through that. You know, people wanted to (laughs) offer you, it was Christmas. Like, have a drink, have a shot. So, um, what's the weirdest job you ever had? You said you were involved in uh, in theater. Uh, uh, singing telegrams. Definitely. No, yes, you did I, not. Yes, I did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and my most popular character was a drag act. It was like the pseudo drag act. I was actually still in beard and like you know unshaven and you know airy arms in a line print dress, uh, and I would sing whatever Lola wants. And yeah, in, in, a, in public, like in an office, or yeah, like office bars, you know, whatever, and yeah. Is the greatest scene in any film uh, when, when um, in the uh, Terry Gilliam movie yeah. when yeah. he s- sings Lydia? <laughs> yeah, did you see, you know that? No, I don't know if I, I don't know if I remember that at the moment. But who out there knows? Michael, Michael, somebody. Who's great? It's, um, it's Michael Jeter. No. Yeah, it, yeah, we could be stuttering yeah. through this, not remembering the names of things that happens as we get older. Yeah. <laughs> so now the Common Air opened uh, recently. When was that? It opened April fourteenth, um, and uh, it's just been running strong, and it, it's been such a pleasure. Uh, Bleaker Forty Five is a hotbed. Lou Salamone runs the space, and uh, another guy named Perchik, uh, Crian Miller, is the G, one of the technical advisors there. But he brings in music. So there's Circumcised Me is running upstairs. There's a comedian um, named Raven O who's got a killer show. Uh, downstairs there are, is live jazz after my show. We break down. There's live jazz uh, most weekends. So the theater is, is a great little cultural center, and, and we're really happy that Louie has been running it so well. They also do AA meetings on Friday and Saturday mornings. Yeah. And I know you're scheduled to run for sure through June 27th, but I, I hear there's a rumor that it might extend. Yeah, no, it's it's been good. We'll uh, we'll we'll keep going running as long as we sell tickets. We just have to hope for more terrorist incidents in airports <laughs> and um, and and the like. And uh, you have a website for this as well. Yes, thecommonair.com. and that'll give you all info. And um, there's discounts out there, so fish around. Um, and uh, Bleaker45.com is also, um, I, I believe it's, it's Bleaker45 or 45 Bleaker. Yeah. Try it both ways. <laughs> Try it both ways. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you, must, uh, you must come and see the, uh, the play. It's topical and exciting and delicious and phantasmical. All right. Well, thanks so much for stopping by. Uh, Alex Lyris and Robert McCaskill, uh, best of luck as you continue on with the common air. And thanks for stopping by and sharing your experiences. Cheers, you, Michael. Michael. 
on the boards. How do you balance politics, art, life, and love? That is a question asked in Madoti about Tina Madoti, who went from silent film star to uh, Russian revolutionary. And uh, to give us a little more detail on that, we've got actors Jack Gwaltney and Alicia Reiner here with us to talk about the show. How are you guys doing? Good. How are you, Michael? Very well. Thank you very much for having us. <laughs> All right. So I guess the first things up here is tell us a little bit about uh, Madoti. Sir? Um, uh, well, Madoti the, the, is the play. Uh, the play, <laughs> of course. Madoti is uh, Wendy Beckett's uh, second piece uh, done in America. She's uh, been working in Australia for for many years, uh, and uh, this is her second piece about very strong women from the twenties and thirties. Um, her previous piece was uh, about uh, Anais Nin. I don't think anybody's uh, ever pronounced that name correctly, but uh, <laughs> anyway, Tina Madoti is a very fascinating character who is uh, an immigrant um, uh, from Italia and uh, and got caught up uh, in so many different. Uh, she didn't uh, get caught up; she made choices. Ah, there you go. <laughs> Uh, well, she was associated with so many different men and movements. Mm -hmm. She was a movie star, uh, a silent film star back in the day, and uh, and became a, and she was had some skills with photography that uh, she uh, developed with her uh, through her relationship. <laughs> with, thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> Try the veal. <laughs> Keep those uh, yes, note those. Do that, please. Um, and uh, well, she she had a relationship with Edward Weston, who was sort of a contemporary of. Uh, Ansel Adams and, um, and was uh, part of these gang of photographers that moved photography from pictorialism, this sort of soft uh, style of photography, to a very Can exact. you tell that Jack is playing Edward and for him oh, the play is Edward. mostly about <laughs> Edward Weston and, and the photography? See, I'm playing Tina and for me it's it's about the balance of art and love and politics and how do you, how do you juggle that all? Uh, especially when uh, you are both like Alicia and like Tina, both uh, very strong, uh, powerful women, very driven, and uh, and uh, you know Tina in particular came from from uh, very hard circumstances in Italy, and uh, and found herself in the United States with uh, as as one might uh, with some success in the in the entertainment biz, but that wasn't enough for her. No. And it's it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting question. And as I was coming over here, I was thinking about both Jack and I actually do a lot of volunteer work and do a lot of work with different organizations. I know Jack works with the Red Cross a lot, and I work with a whole lot of different organizations. Um, and for me, a lot of that is is really what Tina was trying to do: is how do you balance being an artist and being politically active or active in your community and making the world a better place. That's really what she wanted to do, both with her art and her life, and really trying to figure that out. And, and so how does the play tackle this? <laughs> the play asks those questions in a lot of ways. Um, it, we look at her different relationships with the different men. She She sort of was known as one of the lines of the play is uh, she talks about how, or actually Jack has a line where he, he talks about how she changes her men like stockings. Is that correct? Well, people made her out to be like someone who uh, changed her men like stockings, but that wasn't the case. That's, she, that's the I th and I think that is the truth, um, that that wasn't the case at all that um, she actually lost a lot of the men that she was in love with. That's one of the things that happens when you fall in love with revolutionaries. They die. Um, 
Well, but the, yeah, but the, she also we we track her throughout the course of this play, and uh, for various reasons, uh, she's she's with certain very powerful men, and and the argument can be made on both sides whether. Uh, you know, she sort of instigated the relationship where these men were so taken with her. I mean, first Edward Weston, it was Edward Weston, uh, well, she was with a poet, uh, uh, Robo, who was uh, very romantic and powerful and, and uh, political and political and, and, uh, and he ended up dying tragically in Mexico when he was down there, but preceding, you know, before she went down to uh, to uh, to start an exhibi uh, exhibition for him and, and help him down there where they were going to move to the Cultural Revolution of Mexico. And then uh, she meets uh, Edward Weston and he, he just falls for her completely because she's so free and beautiful and courageous. And, and he ends up going to Mexico with her uh, and she is his first sort of guide there. She sort of speaks the Romance languages, so she's better at, at trying to fake her way through Spanish and negotiating. And and uh, and and he's he's rather timid and a bit more safe. And he likes, I mean, you know, I, I think that's fair to say. Uh, and she is courageous. And then she meets Diego Rivera, and Diego Rivera can't help but fall for this woman. And and Edward is so jealous he won't even let her pose for him. He allows, he gives him some photographs that, because uh, he wants to put her in his murals. And, and consistently she encounters these men that I don't think she seduces. I think the men are drawn to her. Of course you have to see the play to make up your own mind. <laughs> or you have to see if this was television you could see Alicia in person. You see what I'm talking about. But uh, it's a no stretch. Uh, another parallel is is uh, what's kind of fascinating is this uh, this this group of people are are, are uh, existing right after the turn of a century. You know, everybody they had their Y two K back then. Mm -hmm. Everybody thought the world was going to end at the, you know the turn of the century nineteen hundred, and, and they survived. Okay, and there's all of a sudden this brand new technology. I mean, there's there's cameras that 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 are about the size of a toaster oven. Suddenly, you know, very portable. You know, you can, uh, you can. Uh, you it was can the beginning of street photography in a, in a deep way. You know, what we do now with our cell phone, then we did with a Graflex, which right. was phenomenally exciting to us. Electricity. I mean, there's so many different things. Mm -hmm. These sort of semi advances, and then this sort of cultural revolution, somewhat in Mexico with these writers like D. H. Lawrence and and uh, Miller and and these people that were breaking the norms. Um, and then when you look at the politics and the history, and again, there are a lot of interesting parallels to today. Today. We have our first black president right now. We, what's going on with oil right now? There's a lot of issues about oil uh, in the Mexican play. Oil, sure. Like, um, so it's it has a it's jam packed. I would say. Um, uh, another thing that drove drove Tina, I'm, I'm quite sure, is is uh, how women were treated. I mean, mm -hmm. she she you know she came from Italy, uh, which I you know is uh, arguably. Uh, patriarchal, and then come to the United States and to Glendale, which is kind of conservative, and and so this sort of relationship, this hot relationship between Ed and her, was kind of frowned upon. So they retreated to Mexico, um, but but she was still until she became a part of you know her own work as a photographer, and then her own work as a as a, a as a voice for people. Uh, I think she was still tethered to other sort of mores, and and this gave her that voice that uh, that w women were fighting for, and and to a certain extent are still fighting for. And we do a lot of so. fighting in the in the play. <laughs> on, the, <laughs> on the walk over, you know, there's, uh, it keeps no, you on it's my it's a really interesting uh, question because Edward is very into his art and what he believes in, and. Uh, 
Tina has different feelings about art and politics. And one of her famous quotes that I love is, I can't solve the problems of the world by losing myself in the problems of art. And as an artist, that's, that's something that we really grapple with is what is art? What are we doing? Why are we doing it? Some people believe it's to entertain. Some people believe it's to make the world a better place. Some people, you know, everyone has What's their the art. What's yeah. the answer to 99 questions out of 100? Some people yeah. think it's to avoid getting a real job. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know. Art for art's sake, you know what? You still have to wait tables or something, right? Exactly. Um, but that but, makes a good point. Yeah. And I, you know, I do believe as a human being that I try and create art to make the world a better place. So I so connect with this character who's trying to do that and do it deeply. Um, and in her life, she ends up putting down the camera because... She feels so committed to this cause that she feels like she can't do it in the end and that she needs to give herself fully to politics. Um, yeah, I wonder if she, because she, she, her, her work, I mean, you look at both of these uh, photographers' work, Edward Weston and, and Tina Modotti's, and, uh, and what's going to be interesting about this production is there's going to be a lot of projections of the actual photographs. It's going to be so cool. And it should be beautiful. It will inform the tone. and It, and, it and, will and, be beautiful. Yeah, it should be beautiful. <laughs> well, I mean, There's a lot okay. of faith there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to that's, be humble that's here. Tina and Edward. Amazing. Yeah. I think it's the ticket. It's all sold out anyway, so it doesn't matter. The ticket's already sold out. No, I'm kidding. Um, but uh, but that's going to be uh, an incredible addition to the the piece. But I wonder if. Uh, you know, if Tina's impatience led her to, uh, you know, perhaps getting seduced by, you know, because she was so powerful, she could she could generate support, and she and so many people would get behind her that that uh, had she maybe been a little safer, more conservative, you know, God forbid, but uh, but had her, you know, because her work still does speak for itself, and it is. Amazing. I mean, the, the and her work is her still and, con- collected. Know. By the way, um, Madonna has one of her fabulous mm. portraits. Sure. Uh, like, what would you say? Compositions of flowers. Um, oh. And when when one of her photos was sold at auction, I guess in the nineties, it was the highest price ever paid for a photograph uh, oh, right. at that time. Mm-hmm. And. So it's going to be visually a st- really spectacular show because we so have is this going huge... to be the highest price ever for an off off Broadway show? <laughs> no, oh, God, no, no, no it's a bargain. Going. It's a bargain because we're communists. So it's pay what you can. No, just kidding. I'm sort of a cafeteria communist. I'm just in it for the free love. I exactly. Believe. The American communism. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, Modotti is playing from June 8th through July 3rd. Is that right? Correct. And it's uh, Pascal Productions, and uh, they can find more information at pascalproductions.net. And, uh, slash Madoti. Slash Madoti. And uh, we can, we'll also have that link up at uh, broadwaybullet.com here with this episode. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So, Jack much. Waltney and Alicia Reiner, thank you so much for stopping by and illuminating us on the thank world you. of uh, Madoti. Thanks for having us. Okay. Have a good one. 
on the boards. Clubbed Thumb is yet another summer festival in town with a lot of great stuff going on at clubbedthumb.org. And kind of representing that festival, we have uh, the first fest, I believe one of the first shows opening with that festival, Dot. And we have got playwright Kate E. Ryan, as well as composer Mike Iveson here with us to discuss Dot and uh, tell us a little bit about Club Thumb. How are you guys doing? Good. Pretty good. Pretty Thanks. good. All right, so I understand uh, DOT has something to do with the Florida retirement scene, and considering that <laughs> yes, they probably provide a lot of audiences to plays, it, it maybe seems appropriate that something be written about them. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so tell us about, about tell us about yeah, DOT. It's easier to write about it when you're living in New York, but, um, but yeah, it, it takes place in a retirement home, and the play was uh, somewhat inspired by the Golden Girls, just in terms of... Um, people living in this this home in the the sort of 80s era. So this old elderly woman named Dot uh, lives by herself in a retirement home, and at the start of the play we see her being kind of unhappy with that lifestyle. Um, and over the course of the play, she begins to um, uh, meet some people in her neighborhood, including a, a young girl who is very interested in her and, and kind of wants to draw her out and, and uh, over the course of the play, Dot uh, sort of finds a new way to live out the rest of her life uh, that makes her happier. All right. So, considering I got the you know position marked as composer, yeah, makes me wonder: is is this a musical or or is this a play with music or what? What is the show? Uh, it's really a play with songs. Um, Kate uh, approached me. Did you have songs in it from the get go? We had lyric. I had lyrics, but no music. Right. Mm -hmm. And so she approached me to make some music for the lyrics, essentially, and that uh, became sort of its own thing. So right? how, do this, how do the songs that we even play in with the show? Well, um, the nice thing about it is it's a little unclear. It's un super unclear to me. I hope it remains unclear to the audience. It's like a little bit like, you know, you don't know when they're going to break out into song. It's like that kind of thing. It doesn't feel, it, to me, it doesn't feel like even even in a sort of proper Broadway musical where you know, oh, it must be time for a song, you don't really know when that is. So it's like songs, that they, they come in, um, there's only, what, six of them? Is that right? I spread think there across? are five now. Yeah. Five, five. spread across the, the, the landscape of the show. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes they come boom, 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 and sometimes we go through a patch with no music. Mm -hmm. So what's the history of the show been? How long have you guys been working on this? Um, I originally wrote the play in 2006, and um, Club Thumb uh, did a reading of it, uh, directed by Ken Rushmall. Um, and then uh, Annie Kaufman got involved, the director Annie Kaufman, and um, Soho Rep did a workshop of it in 2007, and that's when Mike, um, we, I started working with Mike on the music. And I should say that I had some lyrics written, but we actually worked a lot together on writing the song, so it's, it's a collaboration. It's not so much like a lyricist-composer type of um, relationship. So, um, and then in 2008, the Vineyard Theater did a workshop of the play also with Mike and Annie involved, so we've had a chance to work on it uh, quite a bit together before this production. So now, why with the Club Thumb Festival? Well, tell us a little bit about Club. Is there an ethos, and uh, uh, is there a grand scheme to Club Thumb's mission, or is it take whatever? Well, I know, I know that um, on their, I think their mission statement is something like, we produce um, funny, strange, and provocative new plays by living American writers. So, and I think... Uh, you um, do know. I do know. Well, I've right. worked with them a bunch now. They produced a play of mine um, a long time ago called Design Your Kitchen, and I've, they've done a bunch of readings, right. and I've done little projects with them, so I love them tremendously. Maria Stryer is, is really amazing. 
Um, and uh, the, I think another thing that they look for in new plays is, is strong roles for women. I think... Uh, and they do three new plays every year, which is quite tremendous. Um, in this festival, right? In this festival, this summer works. Summer works, right, right, mm-hmm. right. And sometimes they also do a full production. So this festival is three shows? Three shows okay, back to so back. It's not like 29 shows over <laughs> exactly. five no, stages. It's a, it's a pretty contained. Yeah, I think it's... Um, they, and they, it's more like a rep. It's a, yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they, they choose three plays every year, all, always new plays by living writers, and they like the writers to be very involved in the in the production process and give the writers a lot of room to work on their scripts during the process if that's necessary and um, and a lot of the plays after these short week-long runs end up um, being produced either by them again or, or in other places so it's a really good sort of first production opportunity for a new play and 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 if that's the only production opportunity it's also quite satisfying it's really fun so <laughs> So, uh, Dot's gonna go places. Dot's gonna go <laughs> crazy. <laughs> You'll see. <laughs> so, uh, now Dot runs from the 6th of June to the 12th of June, correct? That's yep. correct. Yep. And then, do you know, like, how long the other two shows run? Is it, are they, they all run simultaneously? Or is it like a week, a week, a week? Or It's like a week, a week, a week, yeah. Um, it's, I think uh, it's the same schedule for all three, isn't it? Sunday through? Yeah, Sunday nights through Saturday nights with Wednesdays off. Um, and they're all at the Ohio Theater, which is an amazing theater that may be closing at the end of the summer, so come catch them there before you can because it's a really great space in Soho. Um, so they just do really quick turnovers, and they just do them back to back to back. So is what it, is it you like about the Ohio Theater space? Do you, do you know? I've actually thing? never performed there. I've only it's, ever seen shows there. But I thought for, was for, for sure it was closing. Yeah, is it, is I, think, it, is I it, think it is. I just say maybe it's not because uh, yeah. I really don't mm-hmm. want it to. Because it's very, it's very well-loved. <laughs> it just won an Obi. This space just won an Obi Award too, which is really great recognition. Um, but the space, it's like a really odd uh, theater space. You walk in and there's sort of like a social area mm-hmm. and then you walk in. The stage itself has these big columns in the middle of it, but it's extremely deep and it has these beautiful wood floors and it's just, it's got tons of character, tons of architectural craziness and so it's it's you, people tend to use the space really inventively yeah you're forced to because of the yeah. columns basically yeah. you don't have a mm-hmm. choice you have yeah. to come up with a with some way to make it first you have to see everything beyond the columns mm-hmm. <laughs> what was it it used to be something that space like at some sort of factory um well uh, yeah, I mean, there's a theater company in there, I think, called the Ice Factory. Uh-huh. But maybe it was an ice factory, and that's why it's called. <laughs> they, are, they called it that. I'm not sure. We're totally armed with information. <laughs> we come armed yeah. with info. We'll do our research next time. Um, but it also it opens up to this street in, the really be- in a really beautiful way. It has these big sort of gl- sliding glass, uh, sliding uh, metal doors or something like that that open up to the street. So there's like a real kind of inside-outside feel to it, too. And you kind of get a sense of what's happening outside while you're in there. And it's... It's really fun. All right. Well, so make sure you catch Dot. You can find out more information about Dot and uh, the Club Thumb Festival at clubthumb.org. And again, uh, Kate E. Ryan and Mike Iveson, thank you so much for coming down and representing for Dot and representing for Club Thumb. Thank you very thank much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. On the boards. Parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme.
nothing to do with anything. I only say that so you'll understand what time I'm talking about in the play, the time of the season that is opening at the Planet Connections Festivity from June 5th to the 27th. Uh, as I understand it, it is a, fingers quoting, sequel to Midsummer Night's Dream by uh, a little-known playwright. And uh, we've got the current playwright, Duncan Flaster, here with us, as well as Clara Barton-Green, the co-conceiver for the play, as well as acting in the show. How are you guys doing? Doing good, thanks. Wonderful, thank you. All right, so time of the season. What is it? Well, it's a sequel to A Midsummer Night's Dream. It's set three months after Midsummer on Halloween night. Um, it... Uh, is a more autumnal look at uh, the concepts that are put forth in Midsummer and uh, kind of a deconstruction of it at the same time, not unlike uh, the second act of the Fantastics or, or the second act of Into the Woods or something that takes happy ever after and uh, looks at it in a new way. Yes, one of the themes, um, one of the uh, processes, I guess, that you see taking place during Midsummer is that everything is very alive, everything is growing, sometimes growing out of control, which is appropriate for, you know, Midsummer. Um, since this takes place not only in autumn, but on Halloween, there's um, this undercurrent of death throughout this play. Things are dying, things are changing, things are coming to harvest. And especially with the tie-in with Halloween, um, people wear masks and costumes on Halloween, and we explore that idea a lot further. Why do people wear masks, and what are they hiding from, and what are they exploring under the mask? Yeah, as with any good Shakespeare play, people dress up in costumes and pretend to be other people, and <laughs> women dress as boys, and boys dresses girls and so on and so forth so so clara since duncan's the playwright how did you get involved as co-conceiver how what i'm also a producer and we had done midsummer um four years ago and of course we loved it it's you know <laughs> the perfect comedy there's literally not a word i would change in it and Duncan and I started kicking around this idea. We also, you know, just apropos of nothing, happened to love Halloween and Autumn. And we came up with this idea of, you know, how to explore these characters further. Can we take them further? Um, I'm also um, I'm a student, and one of my areas is uh, romantic English romantic poetry from the 19th century, and I'm a special lover of Keats. And I was interested in exploring perhaps some of the romantic themes that Keats explores, um, the idea of transformation, and uh, and also Keats has a weird <laughs> relationship with sleep, and so I came up with the idea of Puck not being able to sleep. It's a punishment of Pucks for messing around so much with people's love lives. And we were just able, you know, I'm a longtime collaborator of Duncan's, and we were able to, you know, really spark each other to some really interesting thoughts that Duncan beautifully integrated into, you know, the play. And it, it's really, I think it is his best play. It's perfectly plotted. It's hilarious and in iambic pentameter and I just think it's a really so you went with a very Shakespearean form in the, in the as, show as much too. as Shakespeare did yeah because <laughs> uh, the weird thing about Midsummer is that it's three different worlds that all converge it's the world of ancient Greece which is where the lovers come from and then the fairies which are a very European construct and then the mechanicals who are all modern for Shakespeare's time. Fairies and are still a very European construct. They are. They are. <laughs> uh, but uh, they, uh, they all converge and they all have their own way of speaking in Midsummer, And so I tried to carry that over into this. So the uh, fairies 
speaking a kind of Dr. Seuss style of poetry. The lovers all speak in iambic pentameter. Bottom speaks total prose, except near the end. But um, and when he's acting, uh, but uh, yeah, it's a it's a really I tried to make that happen. Now, how did you get the rights? Uh, we <laughs> called up Shakespeare using a Ouija board. And uh, he's I've worked with him before, so he was cool with it. We've done a bunch of his plays. He's really, he's cool with us. <laughs> I call him Bill. So now with uh, Planet Connections festivity, every show has like a, a charity that they're involved with raising money for. Uh, what, what is the charity for time of the season? Uh, we chose Planned Parenthood for this one because... Uh, one of uh, Helena in the play is pregnant and uh, is not sure whether she wants to keep the baby or not uh, because she um, Demetrius has gotten it into his head that she's cheating on him and it's someone else's baby and he doesn't know what he's doing and she doesn't know what she's doing and so I thought it was important to uh, uh, find a, uh, a charity that has that sort of education that has sexual education for people which was not around in Shakespeare's time. All right. So now, just out of curiosity, have, have you had a chance to workshop this on stage before Planet Connections Festivity? Uh, yeah, a couple of years ago, Catherine and Friends gave us uh, the opportunity to do a one-night staged reading of it. And uh, we have a little more than half of that cast back to do this production. It was a really great, great experience. It was one night, but it was a fully staged, fully costumed. Yeah. Um, books in hand, but, yeah, but most of the audience hand, forgot that they had their books in their hands. I mean, I've talked to people about it recently who were like, they had, they had scripts. I don't, I thought you just did it. No, it was there. It was a really, really great production. All right. So, and it's running from the 5th to the 27th yep, of June. Yep, eight performances. And uh, to find the specific schedule, they can uh, get information at planetconnectionsfestivity.com or I'm guessing at your own website. Yes, at uh, duncanflaster.com. And how do you spell flaster? P is in Peter, F is in Fred, L-A-S-T-E-R. It's a silent P, like the one in psychiatry. Yeah. And uh, and also out of curiosity, I mean, this this actually sounds like it might be of interest to some regional theater groups. Is there um, a way people can get in touch with you if they're interested? Yes, through my in... website. There is absolutely a way that they can uh, email me. And uh, I would love to have other people do this play. I think it's really fantastic. And I would love to see it in rep with the production of Midsummer at some point. I think that would be really, really amazing. <laughs> just to draw the parallels because there are internal jokes between the two plays a lot of lines get repeated by other characters who are in similar situations as previous characters and I think that would be a really amazing thing alright well it, it sounds like an ambitious endeavor and uh, hopefully you know Shakespeare doesn't sue you <laughs> <laughs> and uh, again Duncan Flaster and Clara Barton Green thanks so much for stopping by and best Thank of you. luck in the Planet Connection festivity Thank you. On the boards. Is it possible in reality for an entire theme park to disappear into thin air? Uh, that is maybe one of the questions that might be answered by Uncle Shelby's Wonder Pantry of Possibilities, being presented by the Shelby Company at the Planet Connections Festivity from the 6th of June through the 26th of June. And we've got a group here with us, Dan Moyer, the artistic director and writer, Ben Forster, the writer, and Nathaniel Kent, producer. How are you guys doing? Hello. Doing well. Not bad. Doing good. You want to each introduce oh. yourself so people can connect the name with the voice? Sure. Um, my name is Nathaniel Kent. I'm Dan Moyer. And I am Benjamin Forster. All right. So first things first, besides a tongue twister, what is Uncle Shelby's Wonder Pantry of Possibilities about? Uh, well, Uncle Shelby's Wonder or Wonder Pantry Wonder. of Possibility uh, is about 
it, it's sort of it, it, it's 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 this is the first of an ongoing series that we're creating uh, devoted to the mis- uncovering the mysteries of the American past. Exactly, uh, the unexplained, and this one is the mystery of the Sunderband Village. Yep. Which is? Uh, it's something we've been researching for years, actually, and uh, we came across it a long time ago. We're interested in it, um, and we've been developing other shows throughout time and kind of amassing certain facts of the Sunderbend Village. It's very hard to research. There's almost nothing online. Um, we've had to go to libraries. We've had to go to different town libraries and oh my gosh, what, you had to get off the internet. Exactly. Yeah, right. yeah. Oh no, exactly. isn't that exciting? <laughs> yeah, but we've sort of been putting facts together and stories together and different actual you know people who've been or who've said they've been there um, as kids. And um, right now we finally have enough material to put together a cabaret of sorts of, of different accounts and different dramatizations and. And, yeah, it's exciting. It's, it's come to a certain end, I suppose, <laughs> for the research. Yeah. Okay, so it's a town that disappeared. Did I hear wrong? I thought it. I thought the, when we were talking beforehand that I heard something about a theme park. The theme park was built by a town. Okay. Um, the town was um, sort of in desperation at that point. Um, and the theme park came in and they sort of revived the town. But then there was this sort of chasm between some of the town's people who got jobs at the at the theme park and the others who who didn't get jobs and then they were still sort of desperate and destitute and it created some problems yeah yeah there are various strange things about this sunderban village that we've uncovered it was based on the actual sunderban it's an area um it's the largest expanse of mangrove forest in the world and it's odd because there are crocodiles there, there are bull deer sharks. there, there are bull sharks there. Um, it's the largest population of royal Bengal tigers. Um, it's a very dangerous place. Um, there have been a lot of tiger attacks for the locals, and you have to wear masks on the back of your head because tigers always attack from the front. So the theme park was based on this. There were all sorts of strange things in this park, like a petting zoo for deer, for some reason, a dolphin a petting dolphin. zoo. Well, there are dolphins in the Thunderband. Are there? Yeah, Gangetic dolphins. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but as well as roller coasters and which are not in the Thunderband, <laughs> but give the, you know, it's supposed to give the you know something. So now, where sure. where was this village at? It was called New Molar. Yeah. Or or New Malore. Different things say they switch the O and the A. It's unclear. But and and that also is rumored to be in various places in the United States. It's nowhere conclusive, but somewhere sort of in the middle of the country. So mm-hmm. somewhere in the country, a village Some... disappeared, but we don't know. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And this village, New Malor yeah. or New Molar, is supposedly... Uh, there's some accounts say that it was founded by this sort of religious cult of dentists. Yeah. No, called the dentites. the dentites. The dentites. Believe it or not. <laughs> who worship teeth. And so when was this supposed to have been? Um, That's also something that is contradictory <laughs> I mean, in our research. You know, we imagine it being... Um, I mean, there have been strange theme parks that have come and gone, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, and we think this really? was before that, yeah. um, sort of during some sort of... I don't know. I mean, the town was supposed to be revitalized by an interest in a foreign place, and at this time, I suppose, you know, Bangladesh was and India were very foreign places. So the bringing of that to the United States su- suggests that it could have been, you know, somewhere in the 50s and 40s. Yeah, this yeah. is not unlike there was a uh, there was a, a Japanese village in Yerba Park in um, 
Orange County. California. And uh, it was a deer park, and it was a, um, uh, uh, you know, there was koi ponds and dolphin mm-hmm. shows. And what happened was the sort of random, there was mounting um, economical issues. So the owners started uh, uh, euthanizing the deer. And saying they had tuberculosis. deer tuberculosis mm-hmm. until the park was shut down. So this is not unlike. I mean, it's a similar sort of you know. There's yeah, a, there's more mystery to it though. That's what is drawing us to yeah, I mean, the creation of the play. Yeah, we found contradictory facts and, and strange. I mean, there was this whole thing about is honey that yeah. they brought over from the Sunderman that people think they put more sugar into it than the normal honey, and it made people go. Preserve. You know, kind of wild, and yeah. and then there are but other they accounts. They just wanted the more sugar to, well, you know, bring more business in. <laughs> there were, I mean, the honey was also supposed to be an aphrodisiac. That was the Sunderband honey. Yeah, because there are also quite a number of bees in the Sunderband. Yeah. So there was an apiary. The, an apiary. Was it the second largest apiary? By bee volume. By bee not volume, by not by area. Yeah, yeah. yeah. bee volume. So is this straight up kind of like a cabaret? Uh, you know. Vignettes, or is there like a dramatic narrative and structure as well to the no. your show? I think we've been able to pull the dramatic yeah. narrative from our research, you know, based on the certain characters that we've kind of like come across, you know, time after time as we've been gathering materials. Um, you sort of have to make some leaps, but yeah, we've definitely had to fill in some things. It's true, but yeah, I mean, you know, but uh, not as much as you think. I taking, mean, it's kind take, of interesting. Taking, taking information and turning it into a, you know, a song, mm-hmm. whatnot. So. It's a loose narrative. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what's your charity for the Planet Connections festivity? The charity is Democracy Now! Uh, Shelby Company last year did a show as well, and we supported Democracy Now! And they were very cool. It's an it's a Internet show um, that sort of reports on news that otherwise wouldn't be in the mainstream news. Um, and, they, I mean, they're award-winning. They have great, great programs. So um, we, we want to sort of get their name out there a little bit more because we, mm-hmm. we really like the news that they report and, you know, the stuff that doesn't otherwise have a chance to be known. All right. So uh, Uncle Shelby's Wonder Pantry or Wonder Pantry of uh, Possibilities, uh, again, is playing from June 6th through uh, June 26th. And um, people can go to... Uh, com for more information on the specific schedule, or you have your own website as well? Yes, we do. ShelbyCompany.org. All right. So, uh, Dan Moyer, Ben Forster, and Nathaniel Kent, I thank you so much for stopping by. Thanks so to, much, uh, you. talk about the show, and best of luck. Right. Thank All you right. so thank much. You. Curtain Call. Well, that wraps up this week's episode of Broadway Bullet. A lot of good stuff going on. Uh, next week is going to be our final episode before we go on our season break. So you want to make sure you catch that. And then you get some time to stock up and catch all the older episodes. Uh, the season will return uh, with our coverage for the New York Musical Theater Festival. And that's going to be either the end of August or beginning of September. Not quite sure, but I will put up a notice on broadwaybullet.com. Come as soon as we know the exact relaunch date for the fall season. And uh, for that matter, if you found anything on this podcast that you want to find out more information of, we got links and all that at information at broadwaybullet.com. Just look at podcast volume 409 and you'll find it all there. So once again, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and thanks for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet. The hairs went up on the back of my neck. The Broadway Bullet! Jake Kapowski says my name and I'm in the can. Actually, the bar fade thing comes from my whole life. People just 
So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career. <laughs>